Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And momentarily, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, but before I do that, I just want to introduce a little bit. Marriage is a proving ground for discipleship. As we've been walking through Mark chapters 8 and 9 and now into chapter 10, we're learning a lot of practical lessons about what it means to follow Jesus. And if, if you are married, then marriage is a huge part of your life. And marriage, in all of its ordinariness, is not a distraction from discipleship, but rather a proving ground for it. In other words, marriage will prove whether or not you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether your commitment to him is a theoretical one or a practical one, a tangible one that shapes the way that you live. Does your faith actually work? Faith without works is dead. Does your faith actually work at home? And the Bible is really clear about highlighting how important marriage is. We're taught in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that if a, if a man is not bearing good fruit, in his home life as a husband and father, then he's not qualified to be an elder or deacon. And you go on a couple chapters later, and we learn that an older widow whose younger years did not bear good fruit as a wife and mother, if, if that didn't happen, then she's not qualified to receive regular financial support from the church. First Timothy 5. First Peter 3 tells us that the Lord basically says, Husband, if you don't treat your wife tenderly, then I'm not going to listen to your prayers. So marriage is a proving ground for disciples. If you are a true disciple, marriage will challenge you, stretch you, humble you, draw out Christ-like character, refine you, and give you many wonderful opportunities to reflect the grace of the Lord through your marriage. If you are not a true disciple, marriage will demonstrate the painful reality that your heart has, has not been transformed by God's grace. And if you become aware of that painful reality, that is a great time to repent and turn to the Lord. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. God's holy word says, and he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this Word would cleanse, convict, put courage and strength and holy resolve in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we start to walk through this passage, I want to say a couple things because this is a, this is a difficult passage. It is not difficult because it is hard to understand. It is not hard to understand. It is difficult because it is so out of... Uh, I should, I should say that the world, the world is so out of touch with the way of the Lord. And not only that, but even among many professing Christians, their understanding of marriage and divorce and remarriage is woefully inadequate and unbiblical. And so this is a difficult passage for that reason. And I just want to say a couple things to help you walk through the passage with me. Okay, number one... We want to honor the words of Jesus. Back at the end of chapter 8, Jesus said, If you are ashamed of my words, then I will be ashamed of you on the last day. So, I don't want a situation where you feel good about the message and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, dishonored. He would be honored. And we deal with it. Deal with the truth of what he says. The second thing I want to say is remember that as Christians, we receive this instruction as those who are standing beneath the cross. And so, For those of you who are truly in Christ, there is no condemnation, which means you can can hear and process and wrestle with and sort through a passage like this within a context of the Lord's mercy and grace. Now, if you're outside of Christ, you are under condemnation. And this might be a convicting word that would show you your need for Christ so, with that in mind, let's, let's walk through uh, the passage. Jesus is on the move. He's moving from north to south. He's here in the region of Judea. Eventually, he's going to be in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11, en route to the cross. And he is doing what he so often does. He's attracting the crowds, and he is teaching them. And in the midst of this public teaching moment, Those antagonists, the Pharisees, show up again, and they have a question. They are not asking this question as humble learners. We should listen in on this as humble learners, but the Pharisees are his opponents and critics, and they have asked this question to, to test him, to tempt him, to 
draw out something from him that they could use as ammunition against him. They're playing the gotcha game. But Jesus speaks the truth plainly. And there's a dialogue. They ask him a question in verse 2. He asks them a question in verse 3. They answer his question in verse 4, and he answers them in verses 5 through 9. And then there's follow-up instruction in verses 10 through 12. Here's the question in verse 2. Is it lawful? Is it permissible? Is it legitimate? Is it okay in God's sight for a man to divorce his wife? Notice the question is not when is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or under what circumstances is it lawful or might it be lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This question is just simple and straightforward. No circumstances or qualifications. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replies to their question with a question of his own. What did Moses command you? Verse 3. He, he wants to draw out of them what they think before he presses the truth upon their hearts and minds. And they answer Jesus' question in verse 4 by calling attention to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm not going to read that, but they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And they say in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The actual focus of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is not to allow divorce, but rather to regulate it. Specifically, that passage forbids a man who divorces his wife from taking her back if she has gone on to marry another man and then the other man divorces her or dies. The first husband can't take her back. But it's, but it's evident in, a, in an indirect way that that passage in Deuteronomy shows that divorce was allowable in situations where a husband found an indecency in his wife. That's the phraseology from, from, from Deuteronomy 24, which became the subject of a great debate. What constitutes an indecency? But we're not going to get into that. Now, Deuteronomy 24 is holy Scripture. And it must be taken seriously as such. And yet, it is not God's primary word or first word or main word about marriage and divorce. In verse 5, Jesus explains that the Old Testament's allowance for divorce was a concession to the hardness of men's hearts, not a compliment. In other words, the instruction in Deuteronomy 24 is not instruction for faithful, humble, and gracious people. Deuteronomy 24 is not God's will for people who have a heart for God. Instead, Deuteronomy 24 is a word from God for people who are stuck in sinful, stubborn hearts. And because of their sinful and stubborn hearts, they are exasperated by their spouse or incapable of loving their spouse. So, since you refuse to repent of your sin, I will accommodate your obstinacy by allowing you to divorce your wife. But don't think that this is the path of blessing. It isn't. It's only the path of short-term survival for unrepentant and hard-hearted people. It's very interesting to look at the pronouns that Jesus uses in verse 3 and verse 5. 
It shows us that Jesus regards the inscripturated Word as a living Word that addresses every generation of believers. Look at verse 3. Jesus doesn't ask, what did Moses command them? What did Moses command you? Moses wrote these words a thousand years earlier, and they still make a claim on everyone who would read them. This is the living and abiding Word of God. Likewise, in verse 5, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. He didn't say, because of their hardness of heart, He wrote them this commandment. Because of you Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Which is a way of saying, Pharisees, Your hearts are as hard and obstinate as the hearts of the Israelites in Moses' day. And the reason that the Pharisees run to a passage like Deuteronomy 24, which was a concession for hard-hearted people, is because they're hard-hearted. Hard-hearted folks gravitate to the concessions, the exceptions, the opt-out clauses anything that would serve their sinful and self-absorbed hearts. Hard-hearted folks will find the loopholes, or by doing clever verbal gymnastics, they will create new ones. The tender-hearted, by contrast, want full-strength teaching. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Psalm 119.34 In verses 6 through 8, Jesus goes back to the first two chapters of the Bible, also part of the writings of Moses. And he highlights the foundational instruction about marriage. And then in verse 9, draws out the implication. So there's this this theology of marriage that we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Marriage is not a human contract. It is a God-established ordinance. And if you violate it, you do so to your own peril. In verse 6, Jesus says, God made them male and female. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that when God made mankind in His image, He created them male and female. Some are male, others are female. Male and female are distinct sexes, and the male and female are designed for each other so that together they can fulfill the commission of Genesis 1.28, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over the planet. The man and his wife, the king and queen, as it were, ruling the earth as representatives of the high king of heaven, reflecting His character and spreading His glory and His ways throughout the whole universe. This conjoining of male and female is unpacked in Genesis chapter 2. God made the man first, right? And then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make, a, make, make him a helper fit for him. And then God had all the animals march in front of Adam there in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam named the animals. But among the animals, there was found for Adam no one, no suitable 
counterpart for him. And then God performed a glorious creation in the garden as he took from the side of the man and created a woman. And the Lord brought the woman to the man and poetry spilled out of the man as he received his bride. Notice that the helper fit for man is not a beast. No bestiality. Is not another man. No homosexuality. Is not a harem. No polygamy. But one woman. This is God's design. This is God's will. This is the path of love and beauty and holiness. And this is the pattern in which we are called to live. And in light of all that teaching that runs from Genesis 1.26 to near the end of Genesis chapter 2, we arrive at the grand conclusion, the great imperative, the glorious invitation of Genesis 2.24, which Jesus quotes in Mark chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, when he says, Therefore, in light of this design that we've seen, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in the rest of verse 8, Jesus calls attention to the one flesh reality of marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What happens in marriage is not mere agreement, not mere contract, not mere exchange of vows, not a mere human arrangement that can be severed when one of the parties wants to. What happens in marriage is the creation of a new reality. One flesh. Prior to the marriage, there was one man and one woman, two distinct and separate individuals. But after a man leaves his first home and is, jo and, and, and is joined to his wife, thus establishing a new household, now they are united as one flesh. Their, 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 their personhood is not destroyed, but now they live as one, one entity. And through mutual affection, and through sexual union, and through making their home together, and through pursuing God-given aims, they live as one. And we must not trivialize or downplay this one flesh reality because the making of two into one is something that God does. Jesus says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together. In other words, when a man and woman are lawfully joined together in holy matrimony, although the man and woman have a role, although the parents may have a role, although the town clerk may have a role in issuing the marriage license, although the person officiating the wedding has a role, the ultimate and decisive creator of the marriage is Almighty God. Amen. Don't play with this. Don't fool around with this. Don't experiment with it. Don't treat it lightly. You are not the primary creator of your marriage and therefore you are not free to undo it. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 
13.4. On the basis of the fact that marriage is God's design according to which one man and one woman are joined together as one flesh, and that this one flesh is in fact God's handiwork, the conclusion is straightforward. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't undo what God has done. Do not separate what God has united. Do not tear down what God has built. Verse 9 is the answer to the question of verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus' answer is no. As we have seen before in the Gospel of Mark, there are times when the disciples hear Jesus' teaching and afterward, when they're in a private setting such as a house, they ask for additional instruction. And that's what happens in verse 10, leading to uh, additional teaching from Jesus in verses 11 and 12. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, our passage ends at verse 12. But it's worth pointing out that another passage tells us that the disciples were stunned by this instruction. Matthew 19.9 is very similar to Mark 10.11. And the next verse in Matthew 19 says this, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if marriage is such that once you are in it, you are stuck, and the only way out of it makes you guilty of adultery, I think maybe it would be better to avoid it altogether. Do you understand? If you are not stunned by Jesus' teaching, or if you have easy ways of explaining it away, you're not taking His words seriously. Think about what adultery is. Adultery is sin against the marriage covenant. It's a breach of the one flesh union. Thus we understand that if a married man has an affair with another woman, or if a married woman has an affair with another man, that married man is an adulterer, that married woman is an adulteress. Now someone might think, okay, I can avoid the sin of adultery by divorcing my spouse. And then I can remarry a new person. And then it won't be adultery. And Jesus says, no. Your relationship with spouse number two is adultery. God doesn't bend to the legal maneuvers of mankind. Obtaining legal divorce papers and a new marriage license does not adjust God's will as it pertains to the original one flesh union which He made and about which Jesus said, let not man separate. Divorce and remarriage is not a strategy to avoid adultery. It is a pathway to adultery. And disciples of Jesus must not go down that path. Remember the previous passage at the end of Mark 9. Whatever is causing you to sin, cut it out, tear it away. Pursue holiness. Each Married male disciple must live faithfully and honorably toward his wife. 
And each married female disciple must live faithfully and honorably toward her husband. That is the path of obedient discipleship. Now, I have one main application that I want us to take to heart with great seriousness. And it would be nice if we could jump right into it, but it is necessary to speak briefly about two questions that often arise when pondering this passage. The first question is, are there any exceptions to the rule? The instruction is clear before us, right? No marriage, no, re- no divorce, no divorce, and no remarriage after divorce. Remarriage after the death of a spouse is, is fine. But are there any exceptions? Well, the Bible does mention, I should say, the New Testament does mention two exceptions. The first exception is if the other spouse commits adultery. Of course, a tender-hearted, a tender-hearted man or woman won't rush to divorce in such a case. They'll, they'll want to do everything they can to repair the marriage, but maybe the other spouse doesn't want the marriage repaired. Matthew 19.9 says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Joseph In the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph sought to terminate his betrothal to Mary. And in that day, betrothal really carried the the legal weight of, of, of marriage. He sought to terminate his betrothal, not because he had a hard heart. We are told he was a righteous man. And he thought that Mary had was guilty of sexual immorality. Of course, she wasn't, but the point is, is that it wasn't Joseph seeking a divorce wasn't wrong for him in terms of his motivation. The second exception is in the specific situation where a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever does not want to continue in the marriage anymore. Paul says that in such circumstances, in 1 Corinthians 7, the believer should let it be so. That is, Go ahead, allow the unbelieving spouse to walk away, and the believer is no longer bound by that marriage. The Bible does not directly address what to do in cases of egregious abuse, but we should be clear about this, that when a a wife and children are in grave danger at the hands of a wicked man, the love command prompts us to do everything we can to rescue them and shelter them, protect them. Those are exceptional circumstances. Amid the normal ups and downs, the normal difficulties and trials and conflicts and failings of married life, the command is clear for two Christians who are joined together in marriage. No divorce. Stick it out. Stay faithful to the end. The second question that comes up with a passage like this is, What if I've already blown it? What if you've already gone down the path of divorce and remarriage? What if you were the hard-hearted spouse who walked away from your partner? What if you were not the hard-hearted spouse, but your hard-hearted spouse sinned against you and cast you out and thus put you in a vulnerable and compromised situation? Of course, this passage doesn't address that. doesn't address how to reassemble the pieces of our lives after they're broken apart because we've gone astray from the Lord's will. But I have good news for you. I have good news for you. 
Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And one of my favorite authors puts it this way. God takes you from where you are, not from where you should have been. That's good news for everyone in here, regardless of what your issues are. Because anytime we sin, we're not where we ought to be. God takes us from where we are, not from where we should have been. And from wherever we are, we can draw near to the Lord. If we failed, we can turn away from, we can turn away from our sin and take refuge in the Lord and receive His mercy. If we have been sinned against, we can turn away from self-pity and anger and lean on the everlasting arms and receive His grace. We may look back on so many regrets, so many foolish decisions, so many heartaches, so many sins and so many sinful responses to when others have sinned against us. But the real question is, have you come to the point? Have you come to the point where you, are, where you have a humble and teachable heart before the Lord? Have you become one of the brokenhearted ones who, ha- who is poor in spirit? It says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt. Those who despair of themselves. Blessed are you for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so this passage is not intended to press condemnation on disciples who have failed in the past, who know that they have failed and who have owned it, and who are trusting the mercies of the Lord and now seeking to walk humbly with their God. If that's you, relax. Be amazed at God's grace and with fear and trembling strive for obedience the rest of your days. Of course, if this passage is exposing an unresolved sin from the past, address it. Acknowledge it before the Lord and let Him cleanse you from all unrighteousness and receive you into His fellowship afresh and anew. That said, though, the main purpose of this passage is to press upon us what it means to follow Jesus in the context of marriage. And so here, here it is, and I'm, this is wonderful to consider, okay? Here is the application, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. Have and pursue the tenderness of heart which makes a faithful, joyful, and lifelong marriage possible. That flows right out of verse 5. Okay, the logic of, verse in four, of verses 4 and 5 is clear. If you all weren't infected with hardness of heart, then the allowance for divorce would be unnecessary, right? As long as human beings have hard hearts, divorce will be a thing. But it is not to be so among the disciples of Jesus. You need to understand that Jesus' call upon his disciples to consider divorce as a non-option and to build marriages that go the distance is not based on the idea that His disciples will be better managers of their hard hearts than the Israelites were. Instead, Jesus' high calling upon us for discipleship in marriage is based on the reality that His true disciples will not have hard hearts. That's the promise of the new covenant, brothers and sisters. It it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
looking forward to the new covenant which Jesus inaugurated with his blood. The new covenant is here and now for every true believer. God said, I will put my law within, within their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Not just a word from out here. And I have a hard-hearted response to it, but transformation of affection and capacity inside. Likewise, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God said, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone. What, how, how, do you, how do you solve the problem of a hard heart? Heart surgery. Ezekiel 36. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart that is responsive to the Lord. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what Jesus brings. Mark 1.8, He came to baptize us in the reality of the Holy Spirit. And for those who have entered into the new covenant through faith in Jesus, we can say with the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They are burdensome if you have a hard heart. They are not burdensome if you have a transformed heart. Now, that, that's, what, that's what I mean by have. Have tenderness of heart. But I also said pursue. Have and pursue tenderness of heart because just because you have a new heart and the Holy Spirit is in you doesn't mean you get to go on autopilot. The remnants of sin remain. Temptations keep popping up. In ourselves, we are very weak. And the Bible tells us, on the basis of our fellowship with Christ, put away sin and put on righteousness. Put away sin and put on righteousness. And so, have and pursue the tenderness of heart which makes a faithful, joyful, and lifelong marriage possible. In order to successfully pursue tenderness of heart, you must first Walk with God as your first concern, right? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And you see the God-centeredness of Jesus' instruction, male and female, marriage, one flesh union for life. That marriage created by God, it's, it's God-centered. It's from Him. It's through Him. It's for Him. We must be in fellowship with Him if we would have a tender heart in our marriages. In order to successfully pursue tenderness of heart, you must, number two, apply the lessons of discipleship to your marriage. I love this. I love this. Everything that we've been learning in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, in one sense, it's not about marriage, of course. And in another sense, it is about marriage because those lessons of discipleship are supposed to be applied in our marriages. The hard heart is self-seeking. That is not helpful in marriage. But what did Jesus say in, in Mark 8.34? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That should be your disposition. Christ is king. I'm following him as you go into your marriage. The hard heart is self reliant. But what did we learn in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29? We must be prayerful and dependent on the Father, not rush into our marital issues as the great warrior who's going to conquer. 
but going low and trusting the Father to do His work. In chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, Jesus gives a word against the self-exalting hard heart where we're trying to, to get one up on everyone else. It's all about me and my glory and my honor and it's about my desires. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Humbly serve one another. Humbly serve your spouse without any fanfare or expectation of congratulation. The hard heart also, as we learned last week, treats sin lightly and treats people harshly. But what are we supposed to do? This is especially relevant for marriage. Be at war with sin and at peace with your spouse. Be united with your spouse and make war against your sin. But what happens? If you have a hard and stubborn and self-absorbed heart, what do you do? You get cozy with your sin. Get united to your sin and make war against your spouse. And remember this. Since you and your spouse are one flesh, whatever you do to your spouse, you do to you because you're one. Try gentleness to your spouse and enjoy gentleness for yourself. In order to successfully pursue tenderness of heart, you must, number three, be resolved to operate out of a tender heart regardless of your spouse's performance. If you give or withhold love on the basis of your spouse's behavior, then you're not walking in love. If you have a tender heart that is being renewed through your fellowship with the Lord, then what is going to come out of your heart is kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience regardless of what your spouse is doing because it's coming from within, out of the new heart and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working within you. It's coming out of you. And if perhaps your spouse's conduct leaves a lot to be desired, be assured that hard-hearted attempts to help your spouse will not bear good fruit. Hard-hearted complaining, hard-hearted outbursts of anger, hard-hearted shaming, hard-hearted harsh words, hard-hearted argumentativeness will not, will not encourage your spouse on the path of holiness. Resolve to be tender-hearted at all times and remember that a soft answer turns away wrath. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. And it is the glory of a sensible and patient person to overlook an offense. That's all from the Proverbs. And to keep on forgiving, not seven times, but 77 times. Tender hearts don't keep a record of wrongs. Tender hearts build a culture of grace. Have and pursue the tenderness of heart which makes a faithful, joyful, lifelong marriage possible. To conclude, I want to tell you about one remarkable husband. This, this particular husband had been promised a beautiful bride. But when he came and found her, she was not beautiful. She was not lovely. She had all kinds of spots and blemishes and defects and liabilities and issues. 
but he loved her anyway. He kept on loving her, serving her, making room for her, bandaging up her wounds, speaking life to her heart. And in due course, he actually took responsibility for all of her issues. He took responsibility for all of her defects. He took responsibility for all of her liabilities. And he laid down his life for her. And then an amazing thing happened. His sacrificial love for her began to change her and soften her and beautify her and make her lovely. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate expression of this instruction is our Lord Jesus Christ. He left the Father in order to be joined to His unlovely bride. And through His love and sacrifice, He laid down His life for her in order to make her a beautiful and lovely bride. Now listen to this. Especially if you're married, but everybody, listen to this. The everlasting glory and the everlasting beauty and the everlasting splendor of the bride of Christ is dependent on the fact that our husband does not have a hard heart. Because if he had a hard heart, he would have divorced us a long time ago. He is patient. He keeps on forgiving. He keeps on forbearing. He keeps on being gentle. He keeps on serving us. And as we taste His love for us, He says to us, My people, go back into your marriage and reflect a little bit of my character, a little bit of my grace, a little bit of my patience, a little bit of my sacrifice, and fill the world with these little images, marriages, that reveal the beauty of His sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us a Savior who doesn't have a hard heart. It is glorious and it is our salvation. I pray that this beautiful truth would be sweet in our hearts and would transform the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.